HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. My name is Southern Teague. Damon Bolte is again away somewhere in California, probably hanging out with Eric Castro in in uh, San Diego at Polite Provisions. Um, it's a cloudy day here in Brooklyn, and we've had some great lunch at Roberta's. I'm hanging out with two of my good friends and kind of neighbors, um, former neighbors, I guess. You both moved out of the neighborhood. Uh, we got uh, Corey Bonfiglio from uh, Beer Street, as well as Jim Meehan. Uh, from PDT. Welcome, guys. Happy to be here, man. <laughs> what up, sir? <laughs> Not much. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's kick the show off. Um, guys, great to have you in the studio. Um, and Jim, been really uh, anticipating having you in here. I was at your event last night for your book launch at the uh, Roots uh, Gallery over there in, uh, on the west side. Um, and got a hold of my copy. It's a, it's a brick. It was... It, I'm... Carefully calling it my midlife crisis, so it's it's heavy. It's heavy and it's green. Well, I mean, I, I, like I said earlier at lunch, I feel like it's uh, you know when you go pick a, a, a nice piece of fruit, they say they say pick one that that's heavy for its size. This book does not look like it's as heavy as it is. Uh, it's thick and it's shiny and it's a tome. One hundred ten thousand words. My what? editor uh, Emily Timberlake, God bless her, cut, she cut twenty five thousand words from the manuscript. She had one hundred and thirty five thousand words. Yeah, I, I probably would have kept going, uh, but she ten speed could only afford to put so many pieces of paper together in uh, in that shiny binding. Um, yeah, wow, uh, that's incredible. Let's uh, back up a little bit. Uh, I feel like most of the listeners are pretty familiar with who you are, but let's let's give a quick uh, CV of, of who you are and what you do. Yeah, I started bartending in 1995 in Madison, Wisconsin. Moved to New York nine months after 9-11 in 2002. Uh, landed at Five Points Restaurant on Great Jones Street, which is now Vic's, run by Vicki Freeman and Mark Meyer. 
work for them for a couple years and work for Jimmy Bradley for and Danny Abrams for a couple years at Pache. Uh, opened the Pegu Club with Audrey Saunders and worked a couple years behind the bar at Gramercy Tavern before opening PDT in the East Village in 2007, just a little over 10 years ago. Uh, had a uh, surreal sort of uh, experience there. Uh, I think it was the right concept at the right time with all the right staff, Don, John Darragon and Don Lee and a cast of amazing bartenders came through there. And three years ago, I rolled up the rolled up my uh, sort of bundle and went to Portland, Oregon, uh, moved my family out there. Uh, we just bought a house and, uh, you know, it really wasn't a professional decision. It was a personal decision. Wanted to uh, kind of take some more time to, to figure out being a dad and uh, serendipitously, just like you with your, your broken arm, figuring out what you're going to do, you're going to write a book. Uh, I had a little extra time in my hands, and I was really fortunate, thanks to my brother, actually, to land another book deal. So I've spent the last three years writing this book, and, and now I finally have something to show for myself. Right. This is your second book, the first book, PDT Cocktails, which is also an amazing and gorgeous uh, tome that you know everybody has to have on their bar and in their home bar. It's uh, I think this is this is a... I think that one was more just sort of the the the, the compendium of all the work that you did at PDT, right? Yeah. That was just like a, a, a hard look at everything that you had done inside that space. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a Savoy cocktail book inspired house cocktail book that was really a snapshot, at, you know, at our first few years of business. Uh, also took a page out of the art book with Savoy. You know, I feel like bartenders are... We'll never all agree on our techniques or our specs or how we think what bar, what a great bar looks and sounds and feels like. But uh, I think we all appreciate art and appreciate effort. And I feel like the what I did with that book and what I've done with this book is to create something beautiful so that, you know, all of us could put our differences aside and maybe put that on the shelf. Yeah, that's a great I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's a great way to think about this endeavor. And I'm stealing your ideas as we go, right? I'm, I'm working on my own book. Uh, but yeah, to make it beautiful is to make it something to behold, whether whether or not the, the information therein sort of stands the test of time. Beauty, beauty certainly. Yeah, does. make it a thing. Yeah, make it a thing beyond beyond the sort of tool that it is, I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, this book looks like it's going to last a million years. This book. So if if PDT cocktails was was a snapshot, as you said, of looking back at uh, at everything that had uh, to that point gone on inside that bar, which is handsome and gorgeous and well known, um, and small. I like to point out that it's a small bar. Uh, so, what is this? This is your entire career. This like is... I only picked up the book last night at your event, so I haven't really got to dig into it too much. But I, I, I've been, you know, yeah, it just came out a week ago. Yeah, I've been thumbing through it and trying to, uh, you know, catch up so I'd have some stuff to talk about. Uh, on the show today. Yeah, I mean, I think PDT, the PDT cocktail book was very much a recipe book. And at that time, uh, publishers weren't publishing the unabridged, you know, recipe catalogs of, of the top cocktail bars. They were, you know, publishing kind of thin coffee table books that had a Manhattan and a martini and a mojito and a daiquiri that they thought what consumers would want. And so with this book, I mean, one of the things you don't see a lot of publishers like, you know, a publisher like Random House going all in and on is, is a very technical book written for professional bartenders, not just about who, what, when and where, but why. I think that there are already so many great cocktail books, Death & Co., uh, Dave Arnold's book, Liquid Intelligence, The Bar Book by Jeff Morgenthaler, right. uh, everything Dave Wondrich publishes and Jeff Barry. I mean, there's Wayne you know, Curtis, there's so many great 
booze and, and bartending books out on the market right now. But I thought, you know what, there's not a lot of why books. There's not a lot of books that, that get a little bit more philosophical. Uh, and that's, you know, I looked at Danny Meyer setting the table as a, as a book that, you know, it's a whole book about why. Why, did, why do you do this? Why do I want to do this? Why, why does this work? And so I attempted to kind of put that into a volume that's not about, it, there are cocktail recipes in it, and cocktails are certainly my uh, Cyclops-like focus of my career, but it's, it's a book about why, but it's, it's a bartending book more than a cocktail book. Right. It's, well, it says right on the cover that it's a manual, and I totally understand what that means when I see it. I also noticed uh, when I was thumbing through it last night, it folds open and it lays flat. Yeah. It doesn't try and close on you. So this is like my garage manual. I can have this laying next to me while I'm working on my, my carburetor. And when I, can, I was actually... I, reference it. I also noticed every single page is kind of shiny. I can get this book dirty and I can wipe it clean. Uh, my designer at 10-speed, Betsy Stromberg, was... I basically, when we started working on this, I, I found some old like Vespa and MG and Range Rover. Like I found these old... MGB like, Midget, and, by the way, was my first car. Amazing. Yeah. Those books before the internet came with manuals in the glove compartment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, La, La, La Marizocco, all these beautiful Italian and English machines came with these really kind of... Not all of them were cool, but if you, if you Google like Ferrari, you know, driver's manual, and you look back and see these manuals... Some of them were quite beautiful in this very sort of like stark way. And what I gave these to Betsy and I said, I want my book to look like this. I want, even though it's going to have these beautiful kind of photos from Drawn Guild and illustrations from Gianmarco Magnani, I want it to feel industrial. I want, it, I want people to like look at this and be like, you know, this isn't just a coffee table book. It's something that I should pick up and use and get dirty and wet. Yeah, and I think it's built for that. I, even even down to the, the the rounded corners, so that it doesn't like snag on things as you're. That's what past those it. books looked like. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I told I, I I'm I'm glad that I picked up on that because we didn't talk about this at all. But I definitely noticed it, uh, and the fact that it says manual right on the cover, Mian's bartender manual. Um, and as I'm digging into the book, I'm seeing that this book is. Uh, you said the word a second ago. It's it's very philosophical, and I, I'm curious why. I mean, obviously you tapped into it and you're, you're a clever fellow, but like, I wonder why then maybe there aren't a lot of books like this. Because when I teach uh, uh, seminars uh, at the various you know, cocktail conferences that I go to, almost all the ones that I talk at are exactly that. It's why. And they're almost always sold out. Well, we've come so why so Why isn't why the thing that everybody wants to know? I mean, I remember when Pegu Club opened, like Audrey had to buy all of our our barware from Germany and uh, from other countries. She had to work with minners to create our glassware because there just wasn't proper glassware tools to open that bar. Like it was the cold draft machine while it'd been around was like a miracle in 2005. Whereas nowadays, thanks to cocktail kingdom and so many others, you know, getting access to get great tools and glassware, you know, there's so many great books there. So in 2011, when my first book came out, People, you know, I did a little like one page spread on how to design a cocktail bar or how our bar was laid out. And right. so many people kind of came up to me afterwards and were like, that was like, I think the best part about the book is you actually like have a map of floor plan of your bar and you actually explain how it's set up and why that worked for your bar. And I think uh, where we were at just six years ago when that book came out and where we're at now is light years away. So in some ways, the bar world doesn't necessarily, while I'm actually very interested in a lot of recipe books that could come out from other bars, I'm very interested in other people's recipes. 
um, the recipe book market is now crowded in a way that it wasn't six years ago, but the philosophical why market is not. There's still, uh, you know, other than I think liquid intelligence and the bar book, there's, I'm still, I would still love to know more about some of our colleagues' methods because they do things differently than I do. I mean, yeah, we, we all do things. We have to, um, you know, whether that's based on the audience that we're dealing with, the location that we are in, in our city or in our country or in the world. Uh, and of course, based on, I think the biggest factor that always comes to play that uh, I deal with a lot at Amori Margo and certainly you dealt with at PDT and Corey deal with at, at Beer Street back in your days at Proletariat, size. Yeah, but I also <laughs> like think layout, that it's... physical it's, it, space. I also think that these projects... You know, our bars, our labors of love that are manifestations of our own perspective and our own uh, who mentored us, who what our values are, what we like, what we don't like. And I think that that's the, the a lot, like the, at it's sort of like at the furthest edges of the Venn diagram of what I was attempting to accomplish with this book. There is this sense of like, this is who I am, not because of, this is the way I was born, but, but this is because of the way I was raised. And these are the people that kind of pushed me in these different directions and made me believe this was the right thing to do. And I think that I'm interested in hearing those stories from other people who do things differently than me, because my way of doing things is is, is, a con- is constantly evolving and changing based on new things that I'm seeing and hearing and reading from other people. Right. And the only way to hear and, and see and read those things is to take yourself out of your room, right? Uh, my dad told me a million times as a kid, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. Right. So you got to go visit other rooms so you can see what's going on and then bring those things back to your room. And you also need to encourage people to share, you know, and I think that's the other thing is that smart people and creative people are not possessive of their knowledge or their ideas because they'll be on to the next thing by the time that they've gotten around to sharing it, you know, so there's no, there's, I always said with the PDT book that people ask me, did you worry about publishing all of your recipes and all of this information? And it's like, no, I could give you the P, the keys to PDT and sign the book and you can't run it like I can run it, even with all the data. So it's right. not about data. It's about what you do with data. But that being said, if you are a data collator, collector and put together, getting other people's data is very important. And I'm interested I sort of put this out there with the hopes that other people would share their data with me. I think we do uh, as a community. I think, uh, uh, well, frankly, at this point, as a people, you know, we've got the Internet. We share everything. But, I, uh, you know, it's, uh, I had these cards made at Amoria Margo years ago um, that are, you know, it's, a, it's the painting of, that Jill DeGroff did of me on the, on the front side. But on the back side, it's blank. And those cards are behind the bar at all times for anyone who asks for a recipe or even shows any interest in in a recipe. I feel like they want to ask, but they're not asking. We jot down the recipe on the back of that card and we give it to them. Yeah. And people say to me the same thing. They're like, why do you just give all your recipes away? We learned pretty early on that you can't copyright a recipe. So the best way to make it your own is to give it away so that there's provenance. You show that there's a trail. Right? So I I, I get what you're saying. Like, we want to share that information. And and I think... uh, I'm certainly the type who wants to gather that information, too. I have a huge bookshelf at home that's just filled with books about our business. Yeah. Right? Plus a bookshelf that's filled with books that I like to read for pleasure. I need to get more of those uh, pleasurable books into <laughs> yeah. my bookshelf, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you you know, you get busy and you drift away <laughs> and you, you, you know, you spend three years, you spent three years writing a 125,000 words that 25,000 words got thrown away. Yeah. Um, incredible. Well, as is always the fashion with the show, we've blistered through the first uh, uh, portion. So we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. 
Uh, but we'll be right back with uh, Jim Meehan, author of the Meehan's Bartender Manual, and Corey Bonfiglio, The Good Son. For understanding when you are awake Can't use my heart to think away the time In my room I will await you And so soon I will relate you And tie your finger right on up to mine Sweet Josephine, you live in my dream Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words... I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm not one for consolation, never second best. I'll practice till I get you right, my and we're back. Thanks for tuning in to the Speakeasy today. Uh, in the studio again, Jim Meehan um, from PDT, author of uh, the book The Meehan's Bartender. I say from P- PDT. Are you? Is that true anymore? Are you from PDT? You're, you're from there, but are you still there? What's your What's your role? It's so crazy. I just got a driver's license about maybe three months ago in Portland, <laughs> and it was like the last vestige of like. I live here now. Like, I'm not from New York anymore. Oh, you just tra- traded in your New York license? Yeah, I literally, like, didn't trade in my New York license for a Portland license for a very long time. So I feel like it's been three years. I'm definitely going to stay in Portland. I'm definitely Jim Meehan from Portland now, uh, which is a weird thing. You know, I feel like New York is always going to be a huge part of my identity. Uh, but I guess I'm Jim Meehan from Portland, Oregon right now. Well, yeah, even at lunch you were mentioning how... Uh you don't have a schedule. You don't have anything to, you don't, yeah, you're, not, I mean, you're not beholden to anybody when you're in Portland. People ask me like, what do you do in Portland? And I do all the stuff I did in New York from Portland. And, and then I also <laughs> joke when I moved to New York, people used to ask me about Brooklyn. And I said, I used to say to them, you know, I didn't move halfway across the country to live in Brooklyn. Yeah. And then, then all of my friends moved to Brooklyn, literally nearly all of them. And I think moving to Portland was like the equivalent of moving to Brooklyn for me. Like that's my Portland, Oregon is my Brooklyn. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, I've been uh, again just got the book last night, so thumbing through is, a, is the best I've been able to do. Um, uh, the event last night was tons of fun, crazy. Uh, it's certainly worth mentioning that tons of the people who are in the book and pe- some people who uh, you know have been part of your career uh, were there serving drinks, which was amazing. Of course, Jeff Bell, PDT was- catered. <laughs> Yeah, PT cocktail catering. Jeff Bell was behind the bar, so was AK. Um, but then Julie Reiner was there with Susan. Julie and Susan lit up the room last they night. They were, yeah, they were on fire. Uh, Steve Olson was there uh, making drinks, as well as Dale DeGroff, Dave Wondrich. Like, all, like, really awesome people, luminaries, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but all seemed like they were super excited to be there for you. It was, I mean, it was so surreal to... I mean, the thing that I'm, you know, being the writer, like the, I like the art and, and I really wanted to make, 
I really wanted to use the book as an opportunity to like put them on the stage that they belong on, not only that, not that they aren't, but in my life, you know? And so to get everyone gathered under one roof last night was just kind of surreal. Like it was amazing. It was, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea what I was walking into. Um, I thought it was just going to be this, I had never heard of that space. I didn't know what it was. And then we get there and it's this massive gallery space Huge photos from the book hanging on the wall. Big pieces of art from the book hanging on the wall. When my wife and I got married, like we were, we we paid for most of our wedding. And at a certain point, I realized, like, I throw a party for someone else every day. And I'm like, if I'm going to throw a party for myself, it's going to be epic yeah. because this is what I do for a living. This is who I am. Right. I mean, it was the same thing I think for this book. I mean, it was very much, although my wife did a lot of the heavy lifting for the wedding. I just felt like if I'm going to throw a party that has to do with something that I've done, it's got to be legendary, you know? And I feel like Peter, uh, the Lucky Peach parties were all more insane than the next one. And I don't know, maybe there's just a, a Meehan family thing that, you know, if you're going to have a party and, and if any bar- part of it's about yourself, it's got to it's gotta be epic. Yeah, well, uh, mission accomplished. Thank uh, you, sir. It was great and great fun to be there. and. See all those people. And also, again, just to see how, um, I don't know, how genuinely enthusiastic and excited everybody was for you, specifically for the book, for the, for, uh, you know, for all the effort that you put in. Like three years is no, that's not a throwaway amount of time well, to devote to. I think that there was a lot of, personally, I, you know, when I asked all those people to get involved and they said yes, I was floored. And then there's just a lot of pressure to, to you know, I guess this is uh, speakeasy radio to not fuck it up, you know? Yeah. And, and I, just, so I just feel like I was really stressed about last night's event. I was really stressed about this book. I was really stressed about, I mean, I spoke to most of those guys. I interviewed most of those guys for two hours and I, I, they didn't know what they were signing up for. And I think if they would have known that I was going to ask them every last question I ever wanted to ask them for like two hours and to find out that I was only going to publish like one sentence of it, They'd probably not be very happy about uh, what happened. So, but that that was in, that ended up being the best way I think to uh, instead of paraphrasing any of their ideas. Like I found quotes when I interviewed them that really resonated, that I think really spoke to who they are, their values, and, and I tried to find you know just like bartenders try to find ways to make them all you know to to quote them in ways that sort of spoke to who I think they are and what they've done for me and and. In some ways, I use those quotes to complement what I'm saying in the narrative. In some ways, they even uh, have a little bit of a sort of challenge to it. You know, right in the introduction, there's a quote from Angus Winchester that says that you can't learn how to bartend from reading books. And here, here I've written a book <laughs> that's about bartendings. But I think it's an important point. You can read this 500-page book, and that's not going to make you a good bartender. The only way you can become a good bartender is to stand behind the bar night after night after night after night and after many 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 years you will have a chance if you apply yourself to become a great bartender right it's the malcolm gladwell theory right you, you the what does he say it's 10,000 hours of doing something makes you expert in that in that thing but i i you know uh, but I would argue how you do it. Exactly. Are you, you 10,000 hours staring at a wall, or are you really focused on what you're doing during those hours? My time as a chef uh, really resonates with me on that fact, because I've worked with so many chefs, and, and, and my time as a bartender too, but it really resonates to my chef time. Uh, I worked with so many guys who would say, well, I've been cooking for 15 years, I've been cooking for 20 years, and I'd be like, 
Yeah, but what were you paying attention to over right. that time? It's true. You know, when you stood there and you had a breakdown, uh, uh, whatever, three cases of chicken every single day, were you paying attention to each chicken or were you just whistling along to the song that was playing and shooting the shit and grab assing with everybody in the kitchen? Exactly. Or, like, were you present for those 10,000 hours? Um, so it's funny, you know, it's certainly ironic that he says uh, you can't learn from a book and then he's the first quote in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so I pick, I chose a lot of those quotes that I thought that like, you know. Yeah, I'm flipping through trying to find Julie Reiner's because I did read that on the way in. Julie and Suze, it's funny, like they were the most radiant, friendly, hospitable people probably at the whole event last night. Agreed. And the, and the well, they were both quote, super tan too, though. That, uh, that helps in they look great. October in, in New York. spending a lot of time with their trainer, but... Uh, yeah, their quotes are pretty hardcore. Well, Sue's was about uh, her process for making a deal, and Julie's was about honesty, about yeah. brutal honesty. And, yeah. and I feel like I worked... A lot of people don't know that Julie's a partner in Pegu Club, so while Audrey was, was there every day and, and very much ran that show and that team, Julie was around. And, and right. when, before we had a space, we did some training at, at Flatiron and... And, uh, you know, Julie's had a huge impact on my career, both personally and professionally. I mean, just by being who she is and what she does, she's had an impact on a, on a lot of folks' career. I would, I would even include myself, though. I've never worked at any of her spots or, or with her. I've done some events which she, she was present at. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I, the photographs in this book, by the way, are just stunning as well. The portraits of all the folks. Teron um, Guild is amazing. He's and such a, a brilliant and pleasant fellow to be around as well. I'm never going to find this one. Do you know the page by any chance? Julie's page number, Brutal Honesty, I think is towards the uh, service chapter or the hospitality chapter. Or towards the back. That's yeah. Right, so. so it'll be about three quarters of the way into the book. Um, I could it, also it was read. funny last night. Dale came up to me after the party and he said that I should make T-shirts for them the next time they do something like this so that they know what page they're on because everyone was coming up to them right. asking them to sign their page and they didn't know what page they were on. Well, yeah, everybody, um, uh, people were running around last night saying, uh, it's like everybody's here and it's like a, it's like a, uh, what'd they say? Like a yearbook. I want to yeah. go around and get everybody's signature in my yearbook. Um, because again, yeah, these, these portraits are just gorgeous. Uh, you know, even goofy people like Simon Ford looks amazing in here. It's the power of retouching. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Look at Jeff Bell. He looks like... Uh, Jeff doesn't need any retouching. <laughs> right? Prettiest man I ever saw. Yeah. Uh, in this photo, though, he looks a little... Uh, He's very bearded. His, his fiance... He said, he said it's the longest his beard's ever been. His fiance actually was saying that maybe, you know, maybe he should grow the beard back. Really? I think he looks very Eastern European and angry. Yeah. <laughs> he used to be Eastern European and angry, and then he became American bartender of the year, and he seems a little more relaxed. It mellowed him out. <laughs> Um, well, I'm not going to find Julie's picture, but I want to go to this bit here. You wrote um, uh, just a, a little two-page uh, bit about titling cocktails, how to name cocktails, and your philosophy on that. And I think, again, I'm going to come back to that word. This book seems to me, at first glance, very philosophical. It seems like you're really trying to break down every aspect. And so at this point in the book, you've decided to talk about how how to name a cocktail and, uh, and how you do it and how you advise people to do it. You want to elaborate on that some? Yeah, I don't remember the exact passage, but I, what I will say is that there's a whole chapter on cocktail menus and call back. Uh, there's a whole chapter on the cocktail menu and how to write a cocktail menu and how cocktail menus function in bars. And, and in that chapter, I get into the specifics of creating cocktails and right. how you go about creating cocktails and, and 
how you create cocktails for a menu and how those relate to your concept. And when I got into the naming part, you know, I think one of the most interesting things uh, that that you'll find today is, you know, 10 years ago, we were trying to get bartenders to think more like mixologists. And bartenders 10 years ago were, you know, a lot of them were actors, musicians, poets, uh, you know, just people who were very, very creative. So I feel like cocktail names in the bar world have never suffered. They've always been colorful and interesting, filled with puns and double entendres. And, and there's, you know, you black chalk, black chalkboard design outside of bars is in coffee shops for that matter in big cities like New York is, is amazing. It's epic. It's where some of the best writing is. And nowadays I find with the, with the young mixology set, these bartenders can create amazing, delicious, sophisticated cocktails, but they'll sit for weeks without naming it. And the name of the cocktail, to me, is its built-in marketing strategy. You know, like the... Yeah, that's what you say in the book. The, the title of a cocktail is its marketing. Yeah, and I, I talk about the idea of, like, the hanky-panky being... Like, cocktails are these mirrors that you kind of put in front of people, and, like... When they order a Cosmopolitan, they feel Cosmopolitan. Or when they order the Hanky Panky, they feel a little frisky. Or when they order the Manhattan, they're like, oh, I'm in Manhattan now. Or when, you, when they order a Moscow Mule, if they understand the history of the drink, they realize that there's something uh, sort of, you know, that there's something rebellious about ordering this vodka-based drink that's kicking, you know, with a kicking mule, like sort of. So I feel like these drinks really sort of, reflect their moods or their identity and whether that is their actual identity or actual mood usually it's the identity or mood that they want to have and so these the name of the drink kind of is it's it explains how it works it explains how it's supposed to make you feel it explains how you use it its application and it's ideally it's catchy and you can if you're korean you can exp- you can order it when you're in new york or if you're in new york you can order it when you're in korea and it's so there's what I tried to go through is like, this is how you think about creating drinks for your bar, and this is what's in a title. I mean, Sam Ross's penicillin has become a modern classic, not necessarily just because it's a great drink, although it is a great drink, but because its name kind of works. It it resonates, yeah. and people, and that's how that's that's what I would argue is how a drink catches on. But yeah, absolutely. And and also how maybe they don't catch on, I think is what you alluded yeah. to here as well. Like you can make a great drink that has the potential to stand the test of time, but if you've given it a horrible moniker or, or one that doesn't have a, some resonation back to the drink itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, you when you research the martini, there's seven other, you know, the Turf Club, the, the Crisp, the, you know, the there's many other martinis by another name. And then this name Martini stuck, and and, right. and it's the na- the 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 recipe won't hang on without a great name and without a name really being used intentionally or serendipitously as its marketing plan to to continue to exist. Yeah, I'm going to read a little chunk if you don't, if you don't do you mind, please. So here in that section, which is called uh, cocktail titles, you said. Cocktails that stand the test of time have memorable titles. Some refer to personalities like the Negroni, named after a famous count, or places such as the Manhattan and the Moscow Mule, which you just mentioned. Titles with shock value have long history, from the modern-day porn star martini to the 19th century bosom caresser, which proffer false hope that your cocktail could raise more than just eyebrows. Uh, The style of drinks you serve, uh, epitomized by their titles, cue your audience on how they're expected to behave. 
personally, I'd rather drink Moscow Mules with Counts than porn star martinis with bosom caressers. But I think that sense is important, right? The style of drinks you serve, epitomized by their titles, cue your audience on how they're expected to behave. Absolutely. So you're really digging into the psyche of the drinker. Um, and the psyche of the bar. Like, I feel like so much of bars is creating a vibe. And that vibe is not created without, to me, a lot of intentionality. Yeah. We you, move. You, you get back what you put out there. Yeah, we want to move through our space as operators uh, in, a, in a way that is fully intent on the message that we're trying to deliver. Yep. Every uh, detail matters. Yeah. And again, this, that's exactly what you've done in this book is, is try and suss out every detail. Well, just thinking not only what the detail is, but why does this matter? Well, how do, and how does it work? Yeah. Uh, how, how does it work? And that based on the fact that it does work, right? You're, you're, you're exploring. It can work, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think that that's going back to this idea of 10,000 hours. It works if you're thinking about it. If yeah. there's some intentionality, if you, are, if you are moving something in a certain direction because you're aware that it can go that place using this method, then that's, you know, sort of the, the present 10,000 hours versus... You know, we were talking at lunch earlier about PDT, and it's just like, PDT, I've learned very little from PDT, because seemingly whatever right. happens yeah, there that. just works, you know? And I sometimes I don't even understand it, and I've benefited from it, so, I mean, I don't look a gift horse in the mouth. But I've done a lot of other things that I thought were the right thing to do that maybe haven't worked out, and that's where you really have to be present and think, all right, this isn't working, what am I going to do to make it work? Because I think the essence of what we do as operators is we are problem solvers and our life is chaotic. So instead of being frustrated that our life is chaotic and wishing it was orderly because it never will be, embrace the fact that life is chaotic and disorderly and, in, and as a problem solver, roll up your sleeves and get involved. Yeah, absolutely. You say, jokingly, of, of course, that you don't feel like you learned anything from PT, but surely there were some, some, some things that didn't just work. You got an example maybe of something that you tried to do that didn't fly right away, but then you tweaked it and you made it fly, or something you had to just completely abandon? To me, honestly, everything... I got 100,000 of those stories. The things that I've learned at PDT had to do with people. I, I mean, I think that it was... It's the first bar that I sort of opened and then, and then operated. And Audrey, you know, working with Audrey, I feel like... I don't know how she'd feel me, about me characterizing it like this, but I think Audrey ran Pegu Club like a dysfunctional family with herself as the mother. And I feel like I ran PDT like a dysfunctional family with me as the father. And I feel like my, my staff taught me so much about myself and mostly through the mistakes I made with them. And I think that, I mean, I've talked about it, you know, from time to time. And it's like I was fired from Gramercy Tavern. And I was fired not, I don't think, because I was a great employee, but because... My passion got in the way at times of my uh, ability to motivate other people to work for me. And I think I'm, I finally did turn a corner, uh, you know, at PDT where I realized instead of terrorizing people to do the right thing, I need to motivate them to try to do the right thing. And, and just me doing the right thing myself wasn't inspirational enough. So I had to figure out... Right, you can't just lead by example. No, you cannot. Like, leading by example is the very beginning. It is not the end. And so... Like using my, thankfully, my staff was very patient and let me make a lot of mistakes with them and, and how I managed them. And I feel like I, I learned a lot over the years. And, they, and, the, and the people that I work with then who have now, you know, the Karen Foos and 
and Robinsons and Ari's and Amber's and, and, you know, Sean Hordes and, and those who are still there, the Jeff Bells and Victor's and Luis's. Uh, I'm constantly learning by my own ham-handed management of the way to do the right thing and the way to not do the right thing. Yeah. There's a quote in the book that I love from Jimmy Yeager uh, that says, I refuse, to, I think it's something along the lines of like, I refuse to hire people who need to be right. Being, being right is the root of all problems in our world. And he says that I look at the results and the results give me all the data that I need to, to know what to do next. And I feel like that quote for me is so right. And I think that when I was younger, I feel like I did need to be right. And now I, I feel like there are many, like I've said it before, but it's like, there are many ways to get something done. And if one way of getting it done is not mine, but it's getting better results, that needs to be what you look at it as far as like, all right, maybe I'm not right, or most likely I'm not right. And there's this other way of getting things done that's getting results. Let's do that. Let me figure out how am I going to get behind that. Right. I did find Julie's uh, quote. I'm going to read it because I love it. <laughs> she said, uh, on brutal honesty from Julie Reiner. It says, my reputation is for being brutally honest. There's no bullshit. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. Uh, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. With staff, it's not to make them feel bad. It's always to help the big picture. I think that, again, just from my grazing the book, um, I think that kind of speaks a lot to what this book is all about, right? Uh, the, the big picture is, the, is what we're seeking to see more clearly. Yeah, and I think that Julie... The, that quote, if you read the, the page around it, uh, Julie is saying something that I would love to say myself, but it wouldn't come off right if it came from me. Uh, you know, I think when you write a book and you name it after yourself, it looks pretty douchey at, uh, at face value. Like, oh, Jim Meehan's just going to tell us all how to do it. You know, and it's going to, sometimes he's going to lay it on hard. And I think that, so I think that the, some of the like heavy lifting in this book is carried by people like Julie who say these things that I truly believe, but they just wouldn't, it wouldn't be right as the author of this book for me to say some of those things. But when they come from someone like Julie, who everyone knows, who a lot of people know and respect, you know, like Julie does me a great service by letting me quote her there because then she gets to be the bearer of news that's hard for people to understand, which, and, and that news is that Sometimes you're not going to like what the truth sounds like. Yeah, or how, or how it's delivered even. Yeah. Um, I think that's great as well. You are using your friends and colleagues as tools, uh, not in a bad way. You're not using her, but you know what I'm saying? Like you're using the fact that what you just said, that's a thing you'd like to say, but you don't have to say it. You can say, I refer you to Julie Reiner. <laughs> well, I, I realized when I was like, I had, I had hours, I had two hours of, two to three hours of, of interview material from over 50 people. So I had 100 hours of interview. Was this, which was this, was this recorded in any It was recorded. Oh, man. This is, this is podcast it's, gold. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this literally, I had a book. I had like a huge book filled with this, these interviews. These interviews are incredible. But I realized at that point, as I'm like sitting there with all these hours of, of footage, of, of tape, is that am I going to edit my own anthology of my hero's ideas or am I going to write my book because I can't do both and so the idea to have these quotes come off being these very sort of like heavy but hopefully impactful quotes from these people 
it allows me to feature them in very meaningful ways that reflects the way that I feel about them. But it allows me to continue to tell my story. And I think that their, their, their positioning in the book uh, is very purposeful. And it was meant to both uh, put them in the chapters and many, for many of them that I feel like that, that that's where their expertise is grounded in. But also to, like, as I said, to say things that, that mean more coming from them than they could ever necessarily mean coming from me. Right. Well, I, I, I split the hair and say, I don't know that it means uh, more than it would mean coming from you. It just, if that's not your voice and that's not your voice, I consider you to be a pretty, uh, you know, affable, amiable, pleasant guy. Not that I'm saying these, that Julie isn't those things, but like, she's also got an edge to her that's sharp. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not your, that's not the vibe you put out in your own, you know, personal day to day goings. Um, but again, it's so great that you have her in your personal, you know, sort of Rolodex of things you can use and that she's willing to let you use that. Well, I think that's the key is like the, these interviews, <laughs> Rolodex and there's one the reason, the reason why I could never print these interviews is because the, uh, the honest, the, just the honesty and the transparency with which people told me with what with these inter- what this interview is liquid gold and it's it's and not and so i feel like in many ways like these are these are some of the pearls and there's so much behind them but i, I mean i hope all these people write their own book they have all these people who are have portraits in this book have their own books to write and and you know i just wanted to pick the the sort but of th- like pinnacle of it sure but i think even even that even saying that which is certainly true i, I haven't seen a photo go by that it's someone i wouldn't want to read a, a a book from but that's not everybody's thing yeah not everybody wants to write a book not everybody uh, feels confident enough or even cares to write a book but so you've distilled down into literally sometimes one sentence or a couple of paragraphs uh, maybe the the ethos of what that book might be from those people, and you get to use it inside of your book, which is a, it's fucking amazing. I've made my requests. I'm, <laughs> I'm super excited to finally find some time to sit down and read it from cover to cover. Um, in those interviews, was, was it? Uh, did you have like a, a static set of questions that you asked, or was each one tailored to each guest? They were all tailored to each guest, and to be honest, it was it was amazing because it's like I've known Dave Wondrich for years, I've known Dale DeGroff for years, I've known. Some of them I actually didn't know very well, uh, but very few. But uh, like Miriam Hendricks, uh, the distiller for Ruta, I, I, I desperately wanted to interview. I wanted Geneva to be part of this book. And, and I'm good friends with Mark DeKuyper and, and DeKuyper bought Ruta. And so I set that up with Miriam. She was the only uh, distiller who I didn't know very personally. And but I learned a ton from Miriam, you know, so I, I just think that uh, the funny thing, though, about these interviews was as sort of either friends or acquaintances with these people, the guise of journalism allowed me the access to ask the, the hard-hitting questions that I've always wanted to ask. Like, guys like Garrett Oliver, you know, who, sure. like, we all know Garrett Oliver, but, like, there's probably, like, there. I just had a lot of questions that I wanted to ask Garrett Oliver that are just not cocktail party material. And so, you know, being able to corner these people for two, for two hours with 10 or 15 questions that I'd always wanted to ask them, but there was, it was really never appropriate based on our, like sure. Dave, Dave Wondrich's barbecue, you know, while everyone's drinking beer in the sunshine, right. like the, these sort of questions are inappropriate, but under the guise of a book, they were, they were in scope and just some of the answers I got were just incredible. Yeah. Really fascinating. I would love to, I mean, you should, you know, podcasting isn't that hard. Mm. <laughs> 
As, ah, I, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Dave. There you go. You need something to do in Portland. I'm trying to make a living here. Come on. Oh uh, I mean, you know, you you could you could. It seems to me that even if you just put it out as a limited series, so there people die of exposure. I'm not trying to get yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to get you exposure. People die of exposure. They do die of exposure. Um, so okay, we've we've talked about your book at at a fair amount of length now, and we're running out of time. Um, I would I, I feel. It'd be stupid of us to not to at least mention your new bar, Prairie Prairie School in Chicago. Yeah, how's that working? You live in Portland, and you're doing a bar in Chicago. Well, everyone sort of was saying at the party, they were like, you know, how's your how's your baby, my my two week old baby? It's like, yeah, that's I don't, right. I don't know. Second I'm, book, second baby, I second a, bar. I have a bar that I opened a month ago, uh, and then a baby that uh, my my firstborn son that I left uh, a few days ago and. It's real intense right now. You know what I mean? Like it's this bar in Chicago. We have only a couple minutes, so that I'm not even. I don't think I can even talk about it. Like that's a whole 45 minute show. It's and, and we'll so I would say, yeah. So I'll be back to talk about Prairie School. Uh, one day we'll I'll, we'll do the parental podcast on Arlo and Olivia. But yeah, it's just right now is a busy, exciting time for me. Yeah, busy and exciting for 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 all three of those things. Yeah, second kid. That's amazing. Um, second kid, second book, second bar. Second, all, all seconds. Um, do you have a website or anything you want to promote? I, I have my own activities collated on a website called mixographyinc.com. And mixography is my Twitter handle and Instagram handle. And it's, it's a term I heard Dave Wondrich. I've, basically, I'm, I live uh, in, the shadow of David, in the shadow of Dave Wondrich's brilliant ideas. But uh, <laughs> Dave coined this term. I'm sure it's probably been around or he found it from an 1800 Brooklyn Eagle newspaper uh, that he found in some uh, facsimile in some long lost place in Venice. But uh, this term mixography to me is it's a record, you know, sort of DJs and, and record music people throw it around but in in our world it's this i think it's this idea of like the history and culture the anthropo the anthropology of mixed drinks and bartending so my my handle and my website and my my business is called mixography inc mixographyinc.com yeah. the books available wherever fine books are sold and of course on amazon i'm sure yes yeah so go get your copy of the uh, the Meehan's Bartender Manual. It's beautiful to look at, and I'm really excited to glean some information from in there and, you know, steal as much as I can steal from my book. Um, thanks so much for being on the show, for taking some time out of your what's got to be an extremely busy schedule. I know you're you're here in town for another day or two, and then you're going off to Canada to pump the book up there and then ho maybe home for a minute to see Back your brand-new baby. See the family. And then I'm sure there's a ensuing book tour. These are the times. Is People, it is it Maury Margot too small for you to sign at now? I remember you signed PDT at Amore. I can't remember <laughs> what it was, but I remember like listening to someone talk about U2, and they talked about a couple members of the band that literally signed every single thing for like a thousand fans, and then someone else kind of like said hello and walked away. And I just thought to myself, like, if anyone ever cares for, about what I do enough to ask me to want to like sign it or whatever, like. I will sign anything. Like I, I just feel like the day the day that you're not interested in your own work will be the day that no one else is interested in your own work. So I feel like if you're not passionate about talking about what you're doing, then no one else is going to be interested in what you're doing. More great philosophy from my friend and former neighbor Jim Meehan. That's a, that's awesome, man. You're a great guy. It's true. Thank you, brother. Uh, I'm here because of you. Ah, come on. 
Um, so let's see, upcoming shows. Uh, we've got Shanna Farrell from, uh, she wrote the book uh, Bay Area Cocktails. She'll be on the show uh, on the 8th. I don't have anything confirmed for the 1st, so stay tuned for that one. On the 15th, Bernie Lovers is going to be in the studio. He's going to talk whiskey and play guitar with Damon, I'm sure. Um, following that, we've got uh, Bianca Maraglia from Uncouth Vermouth. Uh, and then way out there on the 29th of November, we're looking at Giuseppe Gallo. He's going to come in and talk about Italicus uh, in his charming Italian accent. Um, really, really pleased to have you on the show today, Jim. Good to have you hanging out with us in the studio, Corey. I know you didn't get to say much in there. Jim talks a lot. I do talk a lot. I'm sorry, Corey. Totally cool. <laughs> That's it. That's all you're going to give me? Um Please tune in to Heritage Radio Network uh, for thousands of more shows just like this one. Go to our website at heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to to donate um, and keep shows like this on the air. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being in the studio, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Bye, Southern. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.